Welcome to the HR Stories Podcast, where there is a lesson in every story. If we listen well, stories help us learn and teach us ways to act. Each year, John Tallheimer and Chuck Smickin deliver thousands of seminars around the country to business owners, executives, and HR professionals, discussing the fundamentals of human resources, best legal practices, and risk reduction activities for organizations. This podcast allows us to dig deep into the human resources experience and see where businesses go wrong. Each episode, we share a different story where a company missed the mark, and then we'll provide recommendation based on our years of working in the human resources field. Sit back, listen, learn, and act. Welcome to the HR Stories Podcast, where there is a lesson in every story. And now our host, John Tallheimer and Chuck Simikian. What's happening in the HR news in your world, Chuck? Well, well, John, I don't know if you saw last week was uh, Employee Appreciation Day on Friday, March 3rd. Uh, did you appreciate your employees? Did our listeners, did you appreciate your employees on that one day? I, I would, I, I'm fascinating what you listeners did. Um, because to me, it's silly, right? We should be, as employers, as HR professionals, appreciating them every day. I don't know how many times I've said it, but without your employees, your your idea, your business idea is just that. It's just an idea. And you need your employees every day. We need to be grateful for work, what the work they do throughout the organization. And I think sometimes we forget that. So I love that we're having that reminder. However, this probably should be a consistent thing, right? It should be a set off like, oh, we need to do, be doing this every day. Um, I don't know, Chuck, what do you think? Well, I guess every day should be Employee Appreciation Day. I think about how uh, Mother's Day, my mom used to say, every day should be Mother's Day, you know, <laughs> uh, every day. And even in the hotel industry, we had Housekeeping Appreciation Week. Uh, and I don't know who came up with that, but then uh, we did that. Then a lot of the other employees were, what about guest relations appreciation? And what about maintenance and engineering appreciation? And what about food and beverage appreciation? So then we ended up making it all employee appreciation week, which we appreciate our employees all the time. But I think during that week, it did allow us to drop everything else we were doing. And we had every day it was something fun, something exciting, uh, candy bars, giving out, you know, uh, that sort of thing, you know, waving to the employees as they left and giving them free beverages, non-alcoholic, right. of course, as they left the employee parking lot. So in that way, it was fun. But as to your point, we should always appreciate our employees. And I know many of our listeners and uh, companies and partners out there do. So, yeah. And I would love to hear from everyone. Just let us know. What do you do on a regular basis to create that positive work environment? It's one of the questions I have in my classes. Um, and I love hearing people's answers. My favorite answer so far has been the fun and shenanigans team, um, which has a team of employees that figure out what are we going to do for fun for the year? And then to me, the best part is the shenanigans part where they do stuff, but they don't tell the employees they're going to do it. Oh, yes. um, and so the employees show up on a hot Friday afternoon and suddenly there's an ice cream truck outside. All the employees go to get free ice cream or it's in the middle of winter. They got a hot, hot chocolate bar, right? You can make your own hot chocolate. Just those kind of things. I think that shenanigans part is really 
takes it to the next level. And it's kind I of love that. I shenanigans. shenanigans. I know, right? Yeah. Just, well, I, I John, did say, like, I need to be on that team because that would be really fun. So. Yeah, and and speaking of uh, uh, yeah, that all all that great stuff, it leads to retaining employees. And I know you're developing a retention uh, workshop uh, for managers and employers. It's what about a three three and a half hour workshop on retaining employees. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and I've been, so I've been working on it. And you and I had a great conversation about it, and like what what helps us um, retain those employees, right? And so it's multifaceted. Um, on there. And I think, you know, to me, and I think the conversation, what you kind of really brought forward to me yesterday in our conversation was, it's about the culture, right? How do you create that culture that people want to be part of? How do we create that bonding that they come to work and it's a place of work, but at the same time, it's a place of bonding and connection and uh, working together towards that common goal can really help people want to stay in it, right? And so, a lot of us can't give out top salaries, give out top benefits. Um, but when we create that bond, people are going to want to be there. And so we're thinking about that, I think, is one of the things that I've been really kind of focusing on in the class. Um, we're going to be talking about salary. We'll be talking about stay interviews. We'll be talking about exit interviews, how we can get some data. Um, I think 50 million employees quit in 2022. And I think uh, I think thirty seven percent. I don't remember my stats exactly, but I think thirty seven employee thirty seven percent of employees are thinking about quitting their job in twenty twenty three. Yeah. Um, so building that up in your organization is going to be critical, right? And so thinking about that, and listeners, and we will do. I think we have a podcast coming up, Chuck, where we're going to be talking about retention. Um, yeah. And so we'll do something. I think I'm going to have an article coming out too. So all that will be coming up in the next month or so. Yeah, you know, that the uh, building the culture. And as you and I talked, there was a book that came out and folks, it's called First Break All the Rules. It's a great book. It's a number of years old, maybe 20-ish years old. But the what they found when they looked at companies, one of the retention methods that great companies use is uh, employees that have a best, or they discovered employees that have a best friend at work, a good friend at work uh, that uh, they have friends at work. They've built bonds at work. Those are the ones that tend to be happier, more productive, and they stay. So we're right on that. And if you're interested in having John talk to you about uh, delivering that retention workshop, it's it's fantastic. It's fresh. And he and I were just going over it yesterday as he's putting the finishing touches on it. So you want to send us a message at uh, the team at HR Stories Podcast. Uh, dot com the team at hrstoriespodcast.com and we will get back to you and let you know how you can get that workshop for your your team what else yeah, is going or on if you in have any questions or if you have any questions about uh retention for you like what can you be doing um one of the things i built into this workshop is a um form that the attendees can fill out. So they're kind of a workshop form that kind of fill out like, oh, here's my plan. Here's my strategic plan. Um, and so we can work through that on your company as well. So I think it's a good idea for sure. Fantastic. John, what else is uh, going on? In fact, I will tell you what's not good. Employee retention is messing with employees' paychecks, even if it's unintentional and right, it wait, can wait. lead to problems. So, right, yeah. So- are you saying that people are messing up with employees' paychecks? Is that what you're well, telling me? Well, 
it turns out in the news this week, Kroger switched to a new payroll system uh-huh. over the last couple of months and between September and November 2022. And they, and this is every HR person's, uh, uh, implementation person's nightmare where they didn't do the testing properly. They didn't configure something properly. And for several weeks, several pay cycles, they did not pay the employees properly, nor did they quickly remediate the situation. And that is resulting in a number of wage and hour court cases. So we have yet to see what happens with that. But the court case is called uh, Austin versus Kroger Limited Partnership Mid-Atlantic Marketing Area. And so that's a uh, a court case that was just filed this past uh, January of 2023. Wow. That's a tough tough lesson to learn. Um, But gosh, yeah, you don't mess with employees' pay. (laughs) As a supervisor, as an HR professional, remember we do not mess up employees' pay. Yeah, and that was uh, that was uh, unintentional. And in fact, as we get into talking about today's story after our, our break, that is what we're talking about today. It is uh, it was considered uh, in the courts, the eyes of the court, unintentional discrimination, uh, but it was something that was just as illegal. And it was a Supreme Court case that changed the face of HR forever. And I can't wait to share that with you today. That's great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that story. The one thing I will add in there, um, and I, you and I were talking about this a couple, couple a week ago, I think, and I kind of mentioned it to you, but that, that intersection between human resources professionals and their managers and supervisors in the organization that trust, that bond there is so important in making sure that we have a clear bond. I will say if I go into an organization and I hear managers and supervisors say, oh, that's an HR thing, I already know there's a problem in the organization, right? Because human resources professionals are not there doing it as an HR thing. They're doing it there to protect the company and making sure that we do that. And so having your managers and supervisors really trained in HR um, is important. They need to understand it, right? You're asking them to do these things and you can't be like, you need to do this without explaining the why. Um, and so I was kind of thinking that process through as well um, and kind of make sure that, why don't we do this, Chuck? Let's take a quick break. I know we got a long story to go through and I'm actually looking forward to this story because it gets a little historic. So we're going to do a little history here today. Um, so let's take a quick break, everyone. And we will be back in a minute or so. Hi, this is Chuck, co-host and storyteller at HR Stories Podcast. You know, we present thought-provoking stories about where companies went wrong with lessons and ideas about how to avoid their fate. But we find our listeners are looking for more practical ways of implementing these ideas and making the right decisions and, of course, staying legally compliant. So the team at HR Stories created a resource specifically to focus on just that, how to HR without a human resources department is a free downloadable resource guide that the team at HR Stories has developed and we are now offering it to you, our listeners. Packed full of basic and helpful resources, it's a quick guide for small business owners and those who have HR responsibilities to make the right decisions, stay legally compliant, and maintain 
good employee relations. The team at HR Stories loves sharing HR stories and educating our listeners about the pitfalls of employee management practices. Our free guide, How to HR Without a Human Resources Department, combines our years of management and HR knowledge. And now it's available to you, our listeners. Visit our website at hrstoriespodcast.com to get your free copy today. And remember, keep listening to HR Stories Podcast, where the lesson is in the story. All right, we're Uh, back from break, Chuck. Yeah, John. So last year, last year, we've been doing the HR Stories podcast probably for about two years or so on and off. We've been much more consistent uh, recently. Uh, but, you know, last year we began a series where we dug deep into the most uh, important Supreme Court cases regarding the foundation of our workplace uh, when it came to sexual harassment laws and and training. And if our listeners want, you want to look for those uh, episodes, they are uh, listed in the show notes below. In fact, last week I launched one from the vault, an episode, Beth Farragher versus the city of Boca Raton, which was a huge sexual harassment lawsuit that that gave us mainly the reason as to why we do a lot of our sexual harassment training today. Yeah, I love that court. I love that case. I use it all the time in my class because it really sets that standard um, for sexual harassment. What do we need to be doing? How do we need to be protecting our organization? And I think this case does the same, um, but about a different topic. So go yes. ahead, let's talk. Let's get it back into yeah. this. Yeah, so so I know we like to tell all kind of different stories, but there's a a series that is really important. Uh, this court cases and laws that made HR. We're going to continue that today. This episode uh, is going to move into a different subject area, not sexual harassment, but it's still with the Supreme Court and landmark employment cases. But today our shift takes us to a different type of discrimination based on race based on race. So uh, to do that, we need to go back. We need to go back to 1963 before the Beatles came. You know, Frankie (laughs) Valli was on the radio and uh, it was also, John. years ago. Yeah. uh, Also, here's the deal. It was legal to discriminate, John. It was legal to uh, discriminate. At least there were no federal laws uh, that said you could not. Uh, some states okay. had enacted laws. Uh, there was a Civil Rights Act of, 19, of uh, 1865, maybe that, but but for the most part, on a federal level, there there were no uh, non-discrimination laws, and um, there was nothing saying uh, about racial discrimination in regards to hiring and firing employees. But then, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and that was that was huge. That was Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Act, which covers employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin, um, or any protected activities, became law one year later in July of 1965. So it was passed in July of 64. On July 2nd, 65, boom, it went into effect. And the Title VII had prohibitions against race and color discrimination and was aimed at ending a system in which blacks and other, uh, well, uh, racially, uh, perhaps, um, 
um, uh, uh, you know, folks could have been racially discriminated, uh, were, were, uh, were regulated to unskilled and semi-skilled jobs. So the law was meant to get rid of that and allow people of all races the chance to excel. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, it's that, that law itself, right? I mean, it's, it's fascinating that Title VII um, of the Civil Rights Act is a fascinating impact that it has in employment, um, where we start seeing the change after that law was enacted. In fact, in our society, we started seeing some really powerful changes at that time. Not to say we don't have things that we still need to do, but it really did mark a time of change in our country. Uh, and I would, I'm very fascinated by this story because you're diving into one particular case um, that can really influence how we interpreted the law. Yeah. And, and for our story, we need to dial it back even a few years further into the 1950s. Duke Power had a, uh, a plant called the Dan River Stream Station in North Carolina. It's now called, I think, the Eden River or the Eden plant, but it, it's still there. And they had a policy restricting black employees only uh, to be able to work in its labor department where the highest paying positions in the labor department paid less than the lowest paying positions in the four other departments. And in 1955, Duke Power put in place then that a high school diploma would be needed to advance employment into any other department other than labor. So at that point in time, and all the way into the 60s, up until actually right before this became a court case in the 1970, uh, all the all the employees in all the departments throughout the 50s and the 60s were all white, and the only people that were in the lowest paid janitorial labor department were all black. And that policy stayed in place for 10 years uh, until July 2nd of 1965, the day the Civil Rights Act of 1964 took place, uh, Duke Power then added two other employment tests, which would allow employees without high school diplomas to transfer to a higher paying department. But get this, John, they had to pass some tests, some aptitude tests. So can I ask a question? Because I, I think our listeners may be having the same question that I have. So if I have a job in 2023, can I require a high school diploma? Um, yes, you can. Okay. Can it, I require if, a college education? You you can, but but there are some caveats to that. And actually, we're going to talk a little bit okay. about that here. But you you can. Uh, just okay. in general, you have to show why it's required for that job. Um, but also, you have to also show that it's not unintentionally discriminating against a certain population of people, whether it's based on race or gender. So it's or not as much or, or religion. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Um, right. And so I think that's an important, right? If there's a business necessity that would say, okay, you need a high school education to do this job or a college education or a doctorate, whatever, um, you can put that in place, right? As long as it's not, you're not using it in a discriminatory manner, which I think this is what that case is about. So sorry to interrupt. But I just, I want to make sure that our listeners got that. 
No, that's a great point because um, when the Civil Rights Act went into place, and this is beyond this story, but a lot of companies were were pulled in, dragging and screaming, like they didn't want to. They were looking for any way to not uh, adhere to the new law, and so it was commonplace at that time to add arbitrary requirements to a job, even if they had no real bearing on being able to actually do the job. The two tests, by the way, uh, for historic purposes, one was called the Bennett Mechanical Comprehension Test. It was a test of mechanical aptitude. And the other one was called the Wonderlick Cognitive Ability Test, which is an IQ test measuring general intelligence. And Wonderlick, by the way, is still in, in business. Uh, but at that time, that test had not been validated. And Outside of the story, I will tell you that over the years, they discovered that even in the general population, uh, black Americans were failing those tests at a higher rate overall uh, than white Americans. So it were they were, in the end, discriminatory tests, even though they yeah, were I mean, not meant you, to be. Yeah. When you look at the history of those tests, um, they were designed for white males. Um, and so using that cultural difference of what a white male would experience in life versus a black male or a female. Um, and so they were just not um, valid for the hiring process. Right. Um, and I think we have to be careful because there are still some tests out there that are not validated for the hiring process. Um, that we use on a regular basis, right? And so we have to be careful, our listeners. Just be careful. If you're using a personality assessment, make sure, go to the vendor, say, is this validated by the EOC? Can you show me where this has been validated by the EOC, um, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which came out of the Title VII? Um, just make sure that it's there because otherwise you could be using something that may be discriminatory, even though it's unintentional in there. So in the, the janitorial labor department, uh, there were 14 employees. They wanted to better themselves. They wanted to advance. And Willie Griggs was one of those employees in the labor department. He, along with 13 other men, wanted those opportunities in those other departments. But they were all classified as janitors. All the janitors in the plant were black and all the other departments only had white employees. So Willie and his coworkers felt that the tests were unrelated to the actual jobs. Because here's the deal. Several of them had actually been doing those jobs on occasion, filling in for other departments, uh, you know, for when other departments were short staffed or needed extra help. Yet, despite their experience and proficiency in filling in on those jobs, they were still routinely denied promotions and transfers within the company. So March 1966, uh, these 14 men gathered together and they had had enough. And despite threats to their jobs, their livelihood, they submitted and signed a petition to the company asking for higher pay and the opportunity for higher paying jobs. They specifically mentioned their rights. And I've, I've actually read the petition. There's a museum to this, which I'll talk about at the end of our uh uh, podcast today dedicated to this group. And they they mentioned their rights under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and requested to be considered for jobs in, get this, coal handling, storekeeping, operations, 
equipment and maintenance, our equipment maintenance. So so just to be clear on this, so they sent it to the management team at Duke Power, somewhere in the management team, right? They probably didn't go to the president. They probably went to their representative on there. Yeah. And then it was, you know what happened? No, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) It was ignored. It was absolutely ignored. So in October 1966, a complaint was filed in court. And at first, uh, in a federal district court, they ruled in favor of Duke Power on the grounds that Duke Power's policy uh, uh, had really uh, ceased. They felt that overt racism and racial discrimination had ceased. So the federal court said, look, they're not doing this on purpose. Uh, We're throwing this out. But the group appealed. The case moves then to district level, the the fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And they ruled that the intelligent tests administered by Duke Power. Now, you got to follow these words exactly. They did not, these tests did not reflect any discriminatory intent and thus were not unlawful under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So both of the court rulings were kind of in that same court. They said, Duke Power didn't do this intentionally. Uh, therefore, uh, it's not unlawful under Title VII of the Civil Rights so, Act. So what the court was saying, like, let me make sure I understand this. What the court was saying was, look, just because these individuals were not getting these jobs, it had nothing to do with their race. It had to do with them and those individuals, right? I mean, that's what the court was saying. So there was no intent by the company to be racially discriminated, right? They just took, they took, and I think this is important for the rest of your story. They took an assessment and said, okay, this is the assessment we're going to do. Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's discriminating about black people. That's not our fault. Right. And that's what they were basically saying in the courts. Yeah. And five years of legal back and forth, it eventually makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, here's an interesting little side note. It started with Willie Griggs and 13 others. That's why it's called Griggs versus Duke Power. And I think there's a story there in the museum as to why Griggs ended up on it uh, as the lead name. But there were 14 total. But right before it, it was heard by the Supreme Court, one of the employees, one of the black employees, did get promoted uh, into another department. So he came off of the, uh, the, the lawsuit. So it was Willie, it was 13 in total. Okay, got it. Yeah. Now, uh, it makes it to the Supreme Court in December of 1970. And it, it took several months to draft. At that time, it was Chief Justice uh, Berger. And on March 8th, 1971, the decision finally came. The court overturned the rulings of the lower courts deciding in favor of Griggs and his uh, co-workers. And get this, John, uh, we don't see this a lot, but they did it unanimously. It was a unanimous decision. They considered a landmark victory that still affects how we approach a number of things now within the employment environment. Interesting. 
So the decision, the, the, the overall decision held, the Supreme Court said, look, Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibited employment uh, uh, criteria that could be used in a racially exclusionary fashion. And they said, you know, while this criteria may not have appeared on the surface discriminatory, it did, in fact, have a disproportionate impact on African American, uh, uh, African Americans, both being hired and promoted within Duke Company. Interesting. Yeah. And now, John, there's a term we've used before, as we teach in a lot of our classes. And that is called, well, the rationale became known as the disparate impact theory. Right. Yeah. Which is such a, such an important theory, um, which says that even if we do something unintentional, um, we can still be held liable um, for discrimination in the workplace. Right. And, and so we use that a lot. And we'll talk about that uh, further into the rest of our story, because now we'll, we'll broaden out from this. But I, I do want to let our readers know before we go into our next break. Uh, interesting enough, despite Duke's power implementation of these testing requirements, none of the federal courts, it went to court three times, none of those courts that heard the Griggs case found that Duke Power had any discriminatory intent. And the Supreme Court ruled that Duke Power's uh, diploma and testing requirements were legal or illegal, illegal, <laughs> because they had discriminatory consequences, which founded that legal standard of disparate impact. Wow. Uh, that's a lot of stuff, right? And so again, I just think we have to be thinking about that. It's like, what are we doing in our hiring process, in our promotion processes, um, that could cause us to discriminatory against a race, a religion, a national origin, um, gender, right? Any of those protected classes and kind of paying attention to disabilities, um, paying attention to all of those. Yeah, and and it's not just you know. And nowadays, it, it, as we look at in the uh, the twenty twenties, twenty twenty three, right now, um, it's beyond race. You see, and the Supreme Court laid it out very simply. They said, "Look, intelligence scores." And this goes back to your earlier question about, uh, "Can I still require a high school diploma?" And they said, "Yeah, right. you know, intelligence scores and diplomas as requirements for employment." Uh, they're okay. They themselves are not illegal. It's not those vehicles that are illegal under Title VII. But when a diploma and a test requirement either A, limits ethnic minority hiring or and, or and B, uh, do not pertain to the job skills or the performance, then these requirements are illegal. So this- wow actually was a big court case. It was a big deal. And it still is today. Let's do this, Chuck. Let's let's before we get into our kind of discussion about this, because I think there's a lot of information we want to break down for our listeners today. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into and talk about what can we do in our workplaces and can, how we can kind of uh, move forward after the, listening to this case.
Hello, listeners. I have some questions for you. Do you find yourself struggling with HR and employment issues? Are you afraid you could make the wrong employment decision that will cost your company thousands or even millions of dollars? Maybe you're new to the world of HR or you've been in HR for a while and you just wish you had one resource, a guide to help you get HR right. Well, I've got good news for you. The team at HR Stories is excited to announce a new comprehensive resource, the Ultimate Book of HR Checklist. We created the Ultimate Book of HR Checklist as a simple step-by-step resource guide packed with 70 downloadable checklists and other resources that help small businesses and organizations get human resources right. Even with very little HR or management experience, you can get instant results with concise, practical steps for addressing many of your tough employment issues. Do not miss out. Go to hrchecklist.com to learn more. That's hrchecklists with an S, dot com to learn more. And as always, thanks for listening to the HR Stories podcast, where the lesson is always in the story. So we're talking about, before this case, uh, employees or job applicants who accused employers of racial discrimination, they had to prove discriminatory intent. They had to prove that the company was intentionally discriminating in order for them to have success in any type of litigation or court case. But after this case, those claiming discrimination, all you had to prove was the discriminatory effects, the consequences of hiring or advancement of practices. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. And so, I mean, I think what you're saying, and let me kind of do this, right? Break it down. Break it down. Break it down. So this is what we're basically saying. Look, you can, as a company, unintentionally have disparate impact um against any of the EOC protected classes, right? Is that, I mean, that's what you're saying. Let me, I just, I want yes, to be clear with that. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Ab- wow. Absolutely. Um, so I think, I mean, again, I think that's the one thing, right? And so kind of going through gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, religion. Uh, I'm trying to get all the protected classes in here, folks. Uh, religion, <laughs> national origin, disability, veteran status, Keller. genetic information. Genetic information, right? All of them, race, color, um, all of them. We have to be careful that what we're u- the processes we're using in an organization are not unintentionally um, discriminating. Yeah, in fact, we had a a pod, uh, one of our HR stories podcasts, a couple of weeks ago, where we talked about a. I, I believe it might have been a factory or food processing plant, but a group of employees that uh, they were all white in these departments. The only way to get a job in this particular division, this company, was to have a referral from an employee. So all the white employees only knew white friends, and therefore they were only referring people of a certain uh, gender and race. And that became a discriminatory practice. 
Uh, I read a story and I teach this in one of my classes. It was a, uh, a manufacturing plant and they were hiring people, but not from anyone that was within their zip code that was, that could walk to the plant or easily get there. Wow. Uh, they were hiring from across town. Well, the, the people, the, the racial makeup, the natural origin makeup of where that company was based it was it was a, a it was minority right so uh and they were they were not hiring from the people that lived closest to the plant and it was proven they they were they weren't doing it overtly as much but they were running ads in uh publications in other parts of town and not in their own current part so those are the things that wow. that can come out when it comes yeah, to hiring I think, again i think that's an important thing is Think of all the stories that we've heard. The other one that comes up a lot is physical ability test. Um, so there's a bunch of companies, uh, I don't know, I guess I won't name them today, who use <laughs> a physical ability test to see can they, can that person do the job? But a lot of the times those tests disparage female applicants at a much higher rate than male applicants, right? And so kind of going back and forth and going, all right, what are we doing? And is it related to the job? A lot of times those physical ability tests, when we see them, there was one company that was using iso, isokinetic strength testing to see that, well, that's not related to the job. If you're going to ask somebody, hey, can you pick up 25 pounds because that's what we do in our job, then yeah, that makes sense. You can show that, okay, this is the product you're going to be picking up versus can you pick up this 25 pound weight, uh, which may maybe because of the way it's designed or something you can't do. So I kind of really kind of important to kind of jump in there and look at those things for sure. Yeah. And in our show notes, and I know Samantha's gonna make sure we put this in our show notes, there's a fact sheet when it comes to employment testing. And and I just want to read this. This is from the EEOC. I'll I'll uh paraphrase it uh briefly, but it says, you know, employers they often use tests, right? And other selection procedures. And like you said, it it may not just be aptitude tests. It could be uh, personality tests, medical exams, credit checks, other type of tests, even criminal background checks. But the use of those tests and other selection procedures can be very effective means of determining which applicants and employers are most qualified for a particular job. But the use of these tools can violate federal anti-discrimination laws. And this is that the, the EEOC fact sheet says, if you intentionally use them to discriminate based on race, color, sex, national origin, disability, or don't forget age, John. Don't forget Sorry, age. Yeah, that was the one I forgot. I, I noticed that. I was like, oh, I forgot age. I don't know how I forgot that. Well, yeah, that's okay. I, I feel, I understand. I understand it. It happens. The fact sheet also goes on to say, as we've been talking about, use of tests and other selection procedures can violate federal anti-discrimination laws if they disproportionately exclude people in a particular group based on those uh, uh, criteria again, unless, unless the employer can justify the test or procedure under the law. Yeah, I had somebody in one of my classes. He was an owner of a CP firm, a CPA firm. And he would make sure that anybody he was interviewing for his company was really good at Excel, right? And so he had a very, not a very simple test, but he had a test that everyone needed to follow because they needed that function. They needed to be good at Excel to do their job well. That is a perfect example of a test that we could use 
in our organization, that's not going to be discriminatory, right? It's one part of the job. And two, you need to know Excel, right? And so kind of paying attention to that, and making sure that you do that really well becomes important. We kind of drive that in there as well. Yeah. So those are all perfect examples. And your your example of um, agility tests and such. And I know you tell people, John, when if you're going to do test for, let's say you have to lift 50 pounds, you got to do it for everybody. You can't yeah. just be selective. So that's important. Yeah. Um, yeah. John, any uh, any other final words for our listeners? What are you thinking? I love this story and I love that it's historic and I love that. And again, I love that whole series when we started working on it and the thought like, hey, these are the court cases that change how we do do HR. And so one of the things one of the things I want to connect for our listeners is sometimes a law will come out. But it's really the court cases that give us a clear interpretation of how we should behave what kind of policies should we should have in place? How should we treat our employees? Um, really give us that direction, right? And so a lot of times, and that's why we're always talking about in this in this podcast, in our workshops, um, in our work with clients, we're always talking about we have to understand what the court said, right? And so understanding that, and remember, there are different federal courts out there that we may be in different federal courts and paying attention to what our state says, what the federal courts say, um, and what the Supreme Court says, and understanding all that. That's why having that HR professional in your business or an HR consultant becomes such an important thing to kind of make sure that we do that as well and kind of drive that home. Um, so it's kind of making sure that we do that. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot to break down here, more than we could do in a single podcast. The most important thing uh, I will add is do not arbitrarily decide. You just need to do testing. If you do, get an attorney involved, get an expert involved. There are a lot of rough waters out there. It can be done, but it needs to be carefully designed so as not to unintentionally discriminate. All of your tests need to be what they call uh, validated. Um, but there is one more thing I want to add, John. There is a fantastic preservation movement for this case. If you are on Facebook, folks, uh, you want to search out uh, and write this down, and we'll have this in our notes too. It's called Civil Rights Movement Beyond 1968, Griggs versus Duke Power. That's an actual Facebook page. There is more, uh, there is a lot of info, uh, deeper dive uh, stories about the 14 men who fought and won this battle. In fact, in a town called Reedsville, North Carolina, I looked it up on a map, see if I ever travel up there. It is somewhere on the border of Virginia and North Carolina, way north there. There's a museum called the Mark Museum, M-A-R-C, the Museum and Archives of Rockingham County. And there is an area where, or that's the area where the events took place. And they have a fantastic exhibit at the, at the Mark, uh, which commemorates Griggs versus Duke Power. It's really a deep dive into that history. If you ever get to that area, check it out. They've got, they, it's really kind of cool. They have um, a living room set up as, as if it's 19, 60s, early 70s. They have an old TV and they have verbal histories of people talking. A lot of times it's the children who are now adults uh, of these 14 men. 
and what they saw, what they experienced. Uh, so uh, it's really fascinating. And uh, they they have a lot of videos regarding some of the oral histories uh, that are out on YouTube. Also, if someone just searches Mark, M-A-R-C. That's great. And I, and I love that um, they're preserving that history. Um, a lot of times these court cases come up and they're just they're in the court and they're that they're documented really well in the court. But I don't think the social um, social and employment impact is really captured. And I love that they're spending their time capturing the social impact of this decision that really impacted generations, uh, continues to impact generations today. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's important that we are saving that. Uh, and then we're telling these stories here too. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you took the time to kind of dive into that and do that. I, I don't know if my patient's level would have done that. <laughs> yeah, you know what you could have done. It was a lot of research. It was very fun. Great people at the Mark Museum. Uh, they, I've been in touch with them. I've told them we're doing this podcast. But talk about passion, uh, John. I just want to wind up a couple of reminders for our listeners and viewers now. If you're watching this on YouTube, if producer Sam gets this up on YouTube now, we have a lot of passionate people in the HR team of One Community on Facebook. Folks, if you're on Facebook, also search out HR team of One Community. Well up over 2,200 members of interactive uh, dialogue of, of HR and those with HR responsibilities, uh, folks going back and forth. And then, of course, don't forget, John and I wrote a book, the ultimate book of HR checklist, Getting HR Right. It is a step by step, um, well, methods of making sure that you don't make mistakes. Everything from hiring to firing to how to do harassment uh, investigations, any type of investigations. What do you do if OSHA shows up? Well, we've got a checklist for that, over 70 checklists and other resources, and that will be in the show notes below also. Yeah, and I would just add that if you guys have a story, um, whether that's it's your personal story or a story that was in the news that you want us to address, let us know. We'll, we'll put the email link. Sam will put the email link in the uh, show notes so it's in there. Um, definitely connect with us. The more you connect with us, the better we get. Um, we would love to hear your reviews. We were just nominated. We are the 11th best um HR podcast or podcast for HR professionals. Um, so we want to get up to number one next year. So come on, let's jump on there. Give us some good reviews. Uh, let us know what you think. Anything we can make it do to make this better. We're definitely here to do that. Um, we love hearing from our listeners. People are dropping us lines all the time. Uh, we will respond. Uh, either us, Chuck or I, or Sam, our producer, will respond. Um, depending on the topic. All right, folks, number 11 out of 121 podcasts. We love it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the HR Stories podcast, where there's a lesson in every story. Thank you for listening to HR Stories podcast. The material presented in this podcast is for informational purposes only. Chuck and John always recommend using an employment lawyer to handle any legal HR issues. We do our best to double check sources and make sure the information we are providing is accurate. We may eliminate or embellish without changing the basic narrative to make the story easier to understand. In certain circumstances, we may change in identifying information to protect the innocent. If you have any questions, please reach out, reach out to us at help at hrstoriespodcast.com. 
Thank you for listening to the HR Stories podcast, where there is a lesson in every story.